Thank you so much for joining us. This is Classical Crossroads, and I'm Dr. Angel Adams-Param, professor at the University of Virginia, and it is my honor to be joined today by Dr. James Tatum, who is Professor Emeritus of Classics at Dartmouth University, and also the author, the co-author of this wonderful book, African-American Writers of Classical Tradition. And so we're going to be talking about his work engaging the intersection of African-American writers and the classics. So welcome, Dr. Tatum. Thank you. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. All right. So first, can you just tell us, how did you get interested in studying the classics? I got interested in studying the classics because my uncle Jack, I was originally a seventh grade kid in uh, East Texas in Jefferson. And my uncle Jack, who was a teacher at Weatherford College in Weatherford, Texas, just west of Fort Worth, uh, was uh, very interested in seeing his nephew be educated. And so he was able to extract me because my mother passed away and the family was disorganized. And so uh, he, he brought me to Weatherford, Texas, and there I started studying Latin with him with my uncle in the eighth grade, in addition to everything else I was doing. He was profoundly unprepared to be a Latin teacher, <laughs> even though he admired it, he had not studied it since the 1930s. And uh, Miss Catherine Chapman, who was the college librarian at Weatherford College, took over the task and together they taught me Latin and I studied it on my own and took uh, final exams and was able to get high school credit for it. And so Latin was my entryway into studying classics and classical tradition. When I went to the University of Texas, I majored in English because that was still the subject I used. But I went off to the University of Texas for two years where I had wonderful teachers in English, and I got a Woodrow Wilson Fellowship to go to Princeton University in its graduate program in English. But my heart was already in the classics because I started to read there with Harry Avery and James Hitt. And James Hitt, a professor there, had been a kind of mentor to me. And I had learned a, a lot there. And then even more, I went into classics. And uh, Princeton said they didn't care as long as Woodrow Wilson funded it. And so I did. And I was supremely unqualified in the Greek language, especially. Uh, but I, I did well enough in seminars for them to say at the end of the year, well, you need to leave Princeton because you're not qualified to be here yet, but you may be able to come back and take side examinations. So study your Greek and study your Latin and come back. And so I did. I had a job at Asheville School in Asheville, North Carolina, and I came back to Princeton and spent a Keynesian Christmas break from December to the latter part of January, reading ancient Greek and Latin, I would say roughly eight to 10, 12 hours a day for a better part of a month, uh, though only a fool would call it the better part of any month. But anyway, I did it and I passed enough of the side examinations to be readmitted to Princeton at the bottom rung of the ladder. And because I had done well enough, I showed that I had a brain and a mind in the seminar, even I couldn't read Greek very well. And it, then I went on from there. But, you know, an academic curriculum vitae is something that can be recited ad nauseum, and I think that's enough. <laughs> That's fascinating. So I want to go back to seventh grade and just kind of get a sense of the contrast between the kind of education you were getting before your uncle pulled you out and then the kind of education you were getting after you started with him and the librarian. And also, do you have a sense of why he started with Latin or why that was so important to him? Well, yes, he wasn't trained in the classics, but he was a college teacher himself, and um, he was very good friends with Miss, Miss Chapman, who became a mentor to me, just like him, and uh, along with Robert Reynolds, my piano teacher, 
I was remarkably fortunate to be introduced to a realm of knowledge and a study that I would never have possibly been able to achieve in Jefferson, Texas. And beyond that, they just simply took over and led me along. And I got enough Latin to have two high school credits, but it didn't matter really because I never took Latin at Weatherford High School. It had a Latin program, but I was able to pass the exams there and then went on to the University of Texas. And at the University of Texas, I was still an English major. I had two years there, but I was in the middle of one of the most dynamic and fascinating classics programs in the United States, the classics program at the University of Texas with the founding of its journal, Orion, with William Arrowsmith and many others. And my mentor, James A. Hitt, who was a professor uh, of classics, uh, who became a kind of mentor to me. And so I started Greek with Harry Avery, who was a wonderful professor who went to the University of Pittsburgh and is now retired, and with James Hitt. And I went on to Princeton, though, with a Woodrow Wilson in English. And even though I wasn't qualified in any way to go into the graduate program in Princeton, since I had a Woodrow Wilson, I could spend the second half of the year as a classic student. So I did that, and uh, I went in to the Latin and Greek seminars, and I did well enough that Princeton, although they said I was showing promise in Greek and Latin, I got these doleful letters saying that I was disinvited from Princeton and must leave at the end of the year. So I got to experience that. And luckily, I went off to Asheville School in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, and was hired by John Tyrer, the new headmaster there from the Hill School, went to Asheville, and he hired me to teach Latin. And so what Latin I didn't know, I learned teaching others. And especially I had a wonderful student, Don Matheson, who would later go into Princeton. But at any rate, that did me well enough in the side examinations because at Princeton, in order to be admitted to the program and to stay in it, you had to pass facing a passage of Greek and a passage of Latin in both prose and poetry, four exams and all, to be admitted to the program because that was just the starting point. You know, what were you, what were you doing if you couldn't read Latin and Greek going to a graduate program in classics? And so without going into detail of what I did in the program, I passed enough of the exams to do that. And the rest, as one of my students once said, is hysteria. That is to say, graduate education, which even for the best prepared student is sometimes not so much fun. But that's a long-winded answer to your question. So then let's get to how you decided to kind of work at the intersection of African-American writers in the classics. Because that doesn't seem like an obvious thing. I'm assuming that probably didn't happen in graduate school. So what led you down that path? Well, in fact, it wasn't a path. It was something I found myself on because Dartmouth College, under the presidency of John Kennedy, one of the great presidents of Dartmouth, and I was happy to say I got tenure under him, but one of my closest friends was Professor William W. Cook who in a way was even parallel to me in classics, because just as I was a kind of amateur getting into classics, Bill Cook didn't have a PhD, but he was one of the most gifted teachers in the United States in teaching literature. And he, a full professor of classics at Dartmouth, he had been lutatorian of his class at Trenton State, but he became chair of the English department at Dartmouth and a full professor and finally, a member of the committee advisory to the president of Dartmouth. And we became very good friends. And in fact, my first encounter with African-American literature and music and culture was through William W. Cook. And together, we began to perform. I was playing the piano, and he would recite and perform poems and parts of poems and texts and so forth. And performing with him was an education for me. We were very good friends anyway, good colleagues and all that. And he was extremely accomplished, a brilliant guy. 
But, you know, he had infected me so much that I got very proficient in playing rags and accompanying things to illustrate uh, African-American poets he would recite, often from memory. And I, in turn, passed along things to him about classics, and he had always been interested in classics anyway. So together, we came to write that book about African-American writers and classics. But first, it started out as a course, and it started out as a dialogue with me as a classics Greek and Latin teacher talking about things, and with him the African-American professor talking about the world in which the various authors, writers, and poets existed. And so it was, for me, a very personal decision. The field of African-American writers in classical tradition and the way it's been followed developed as we went along. But to begin with, it was one human being working and responding to another. That's beautiful. So it was essentially friendship that led you into this really wonderful and fruitful direction. And can you tell me more about the course, how long you two taught it, how well received was it, how did students respond? Well, yes, I'd like to. First of all, it's important for me to say that we were both much appreciated because we both got tenure at Dartmouth, which is not an easy thing to do. And we both were chairs of our respective departments of first of African-American studies and then of English department, and then me and classics. And so we were fully accredited and could do whatever we wanted to. And what we wanted to do was to join together with my talent in music and his talent in acting and reading poetry. He was an accomplished poet and a fantastic teacher, probably the greatest teacher I ever worked with. And we thought that we could see the two talents of having Black poets, as we call them, African-American poets and writers, and classical music that I could play, and also the ragtime music above all, the ragtime music of Scott Joplin and his successors we could see that we could have a melding of those two talents and those two streams together. So we have a performance and we still have a tape of a performance, I think somewhere. But but, but anyway, we we got together first as performing artists, bringing the stuff together into life so that you would hear not only the poem, When Melindy Sings, but the Joplin rag, which accompanies it, which actually fits line for line and syllable for syllable, almost the Joplin rag. So, so that kind of combination was a very personal one. And I should say also that both of us were, in our respective ways, gay. And uh, as gay men, we knew, uh, and I knew instinctively what he knew by experience of what it's like to be on the outside and to insist that there can be a production, that there can be art, there can be poetry, there can be music that pulls together things of, of a people and of a a race who were despised or enslaved or otherwise, who forced themselves and their culture onto the stage of recognition in the United States. And uh, Bill Cook did, of course, far more than that than I ever did, but I was glad to accompany him in that. And so I didn't mind playing when he would recite his poem, when Melindy sings, I found the Joplin rag that would go with it. And how did the students at Dartmouth respond to the course? The students at Dartmouth responded to the course the same way the the audiences had to our performances. They overwhelmingly uh, approved of it and signed up for it. And we, uh, our enrollment went to 70 or 80 students, which is a big course at Dartmouth. Was the course mainly the music and the poetry, or did you also read many of the texts of African-American writers? It was entirely about African-American writers. The title of the course was was the same as, uh, I admit it's a little sesquipedalian to use one of Miss Chapman's words. It's a little long, that's a long-winded way of saying long-winded. 
but it was African American writers in classical tradition uh, from the very from the very beginning. And we started we started with Phyllis Wheatley, uh, but uh, I found it was very possible to play Phyllis Wheatley against Horace and Virgil and the writers she she studied and revered. So. Uh, we, we just, and it's what we essentially did was follow history. We weren't inventing anything, uh, anything that Phyllis Wheatley wouldn't have recognized as appropriate and, uh, and, rele and relevant. And there's this wonderful uh, classical figure called Oxy, Oxymoron, uh, the clever foolish. <laughs> it seemed at first on the face of it, an oxymoronic concept to say African-American and classical tradition, because people would think that classical tradition and the classics would be the very antithesis of African-American culture and literature. And in fact, it wasn't that way at all. It was in fact an assimilation of the two together. A, a fusing of the two, and not some intellectual construct of professors sitting around talking about it, but it was the, the people studying it and above all the artists and the poets and the composers putting it together. So of course a Phyllis Wheatley poem can be read against a Joplin rag. And the fact that it's a rag, uh, you know, open the book of Joplin's music and you see that the word rag, it's the word we have to use but it doesn't begin to describe the wonderfully contemplative music that Joplin was able to create and that we were able to fit together. So when Melindy sings and then a slow Joplin rag. Now, why do you think it is that people see um, African-American tradition and the classics as being an oxymoron? What, what is behind that? Uh, well, the oxymoron, the literally the clever foolish, what they what they see behind that is the heritage of racism and slavery, I think, uh, and lack of education and lack of awareness. Uh, first of all, they don't know the classics very well. Let me say that as a professor of classics. They don't know classics very well because you will never find a more stringent critic of classical education and the classics than in classical writers themselves. Really, I'm quite serious about that. You can see that in Petronius, for example, or in Tacitus. Uh, uh, especially in especially in the Romans, and then there's just the, the weight of history. What was it that drew uh, Phyllis Wheatley and others into using Western style music? It, it seemed and writing compositions and writing down compositions that you know coming out of an oral culture, but writing compositions and having them published. As Scott Joplin did. They were on the same track as uh, Johannes Brahms. Or, or Frederick Chopin or Beethoven or anyone else, and people publishing, uh, African-Americans publishing like Phyllis Wheatley uh, and, and, and laters were on the same track as uh, uh, classical scholars. So in, 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 the, in the end, it's, it's because African-Americans, if I may say so, were just like any other people and their literature were just like any other people's literature and their arts were totally played together very well. And if you rise to that level and rise to that perception, you're not going to be deluded or stop, and especially because you're not running for office <laughs> necessarily. You're, you're interested in the truth and try, trying to get at it. Uh, you, you will come up and see our show. So the, the book is extraordinary. Um, I just thank you so much for what you have contributed in this area, which is incredibly important. And I think, you know, as you're saying, even though some people may see it as an oxymoron, it really isn't, right? You know, there's a very natural conversation there. And I'm wondering, um, 
How was the book received? How did people respond to the book? The book was overwhelmingly received well. Great reviews and went into a second printing and is used in courses and is a standard. It, we, we aim for it to be a standard uh, text to, to go back to, to see, to see. And by the way, I'm in a tradition of classics uh, this, like Simon Weil or Simon Weil uh, and others who told maybe un, unpleasant truths about even the savagery of Homer's Iliad uh, and its relevance to the present day. Someone who had read Homer, what the Nazis did in Germany to the Jews was not news to people who had read Homer carefully, what people were care careful of. What Americans did to enslave and people in the Western Hemisphere did to enslave Africans was not news if you were read well enough. And we both came out of that background. What you're saying is that um, these classic texts are, are really probing the essence of what it means to be human, both the great and the terrible aspects of what it means to be human. Yes, exactly. Uh, exactly so. And Simon Weil, uh, as the French say, or Weil, as we would say in Germany, uh, or whatever, uh, was, was, uh, has always been a major model for me. Her great poem, has a nice, nice Freudian slip. Uh, her, her short essay, The Iliad or the Poem of Force, it was a, a brilliant, written, written as the, ri the rising tide of Nazism, the sweeping Europe. Uh, she saw clearly uh, into the Iliad and read it in a way that though she wasn't a professional classicist at all, she, she saw in, the, in Homer's Iliad a forecast of the ferocity and the savagery that, uh, that everybody seems to think was unique, uh, uniquely awful in the Second World War, and it was not, not, not so at all. And so, so these books are sort of little time bombs in your life. They can go up and really hit you between the eyes. And anyway, this collaboration between me and Coke came out in such ways we were closest to friends. One of the best friends I ever had in my life. And we shared everything. And he had a poet's imagination and a scholar's integrity and discipline and a teacher's experience. And above all, an African-American living in the, as, as what he was fond of saying, the no-nined states. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, he, he, and I, I had come from the very background, segregationist East Texas and the South, uh, which would be, uh, which would say that we would have so little in common, you know, we, we would really be more opponents or something, but it was through education and through poetry and through the vision of people like Simon Ray and uh, uh, the writers that and poets that we put in our book and into our teaching. That book comes out of teaching together, by the way. It's mm -hmm. not written in a vacuum. It comes from our teaching together. When I reread the book at points, it's almost like going back into the classroom with Cook. So I love that. What you're saying um, is that even though the two of you come from such very different backgrounds and people would think that you wouldn't share very much, um, it sounds like reading together, the classics reading together African-American writers helped you in, in your friendship, in bridging those differences, in exploring the very different places you came from. And um, I've wanted to, to think about that, the power of text to unite us. There is now a movement to have classical education for children in elementary and secondary schools. And they focus on reading primary text from many different places, but especially the classics. And I wondered what your thinking is about this kind of movement. What benefits do you see for very young children beginning to get this kind of classical education? Well, 
I have no experience or qualification to comment about uh, what should go into primary or early education because I was dealing with the shattered and tattered survivors of that educational process at Dartmouth. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. uh, but I think they should have the same kind of education that everyone is having. Everyone should have the same one in the United States. And I think that some of the hard truths, some of the hard perceptions we have, the, the odyssey is at one level is, is a book that has wonderful stories in it and so forth. But famous things like the Song of the Sirens or the Cyclops, Polyphemus, or stuff that you, you have in the Odyssey. Uh, that's all early stuff that you get in the novel. And, and excuse me, Freudian slip. But the Odyssey was a great model for what we now call the novel, which developed later. Uh, something I was very interested in. But, but I, I, I think the books are ones that you can read and get close to and then grow up into. And th- that happens with the Odyssey. And I think it happens, for example, with Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, which is clearly a work written by a a poet and a thinker who had uh, who had read the Odyssey carefully and thought about it. So uh, I, I'm not quite sure. For me to make pronouncements now is probably not up such a great idea because I'm because for one thing I've forgotten your question. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. You you said something um, that was very interesting to me. You said that at Dartmouth you were dealing with the fragments and the shattered aspects of their earlier education. Could you say more about what you mean by that? Yeah, uh, what I mean by that is, uh, that's probably an overstatement, but we, we had lots of kids who had been to uh, the finest finishing schools and so forth. Uh, they had what they thought was a sure grasp of the knowledge uh, and the wisdom that, that, that such books and life experience ha- had to teach them. And we ran across sometimes a spectrum of uh, smugness or uh, been there, done thatism. Uh, one of our aims as teachers was to unsettle that and shake them up. And so we would. So we would, uh, we, we would and I, I can't go into, into that in detail, obviously, but, but, but one of the aims of, some, of a teacher teaching something like this, especially like the Iliad, uh, which is the first, but in many ways, the most difficult of poems to teach to students because there, there can be such simplistic responses to it. Uh, what you have to do as a teacher, at least as we did as, as, as teachers, was to lay out very calmly the, shall we say, the theater, the amphitheater of ideas in which the, the text exists, and then lead them by the hand into it and then let the chaos begin. And the chaos, the chaos would be, and they would find themselves reaching for whatever answer the author had or whatever question the author was trying to pose. And we would do that. But for me, all I can say is recalling teaching. You know, we, we, we look at syllabuses and books and so forth, and we want to try to have a organized thing. But as I think about teaching, all I think about uh, is, well, it's like going out and mowing the yard again. Or it's like going out, uh, going off to work and doing a job because it's a process that never stops. And you have to be ruthless and compassionate and you have to be tough and gentle and uh, all of the things that that are are involved there. Because what I'm talking about is an engagement with young minds growing and developing. And that's what I learned working with Bill Cook because he had taught in secondary school and knew all about young minds and, and what happens to them and why they need to be shocked and then consoled and then shocked and then consoled 
and then led and then outlined and then woken up and then put back to sleep and so forth. It's, it's, it's an ongoing, uh, impossible, impossible job. So I just have a couple questions um, to conclude our time here. I'm hoping that perhaps some of our listeners can uh, just gain from your wisdom. If there were a young person, perhaps in high school, who was intrigued by the idea of studying the classics, is there one particular text you would suggest they start with? Yes, uh, I would suggest that they start with the Homer's Odyssey, which is one which has tales that children can really enjoy and so forth. And just as children grow up and turn into versions of their parents, so does the Odyssey eventually turn into a version of a parent because it draws you in with all these adventure stories and fantastic things like the Cyclops, Polyphemus, and, uh, and, and Circe, you know, the world's sexiest woman until you find out that you're in hell. Uh, things like that, you know, uh, and do, do that. And then you, t- you, you, t- you take them and realize that they're growing up into that with, with, with the text. And it's something they reread and reread. And it's something as they grow up, they discover to their astonishment that the text is growing up with them. And then their teachers, their teachers are the ones who have always known that text is like that. That in fact, in teaching that text, you're showing them the, the arc of a life and what it means to be a human being and why all the kerfuffle of whatever people are ranting and raving about in the day is all very well, but there's an essential there's an essential development and evolution going on and you will ignore it and be stupid about it at your peril. Excellent. Excellent advice. And for our final question, um, if a young student, again, in about high school level, were interested in really entering into the African-American writing tradition, is there a text that you would recommend in particular that they start with? The African-American writing tradition. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Well, this is why we have things called interdisciplinary courses, because the best answer for that would come from an African-American writer or teacher. But what, what, what book would I recommend? I would recommend, again, Homer's Odyssey, because the Odyssey looks like it's a text written for children, and it's emphatically not. And then it looks like it's a text written for parents, and it's emphatically not. It's for human beings. It's for human humanity. And the Odyssey is the sequel poem to the Iliad. In fact, I'm sorry to say, uh, it's terribly unoriginal with me, but if, if you would start the kid reading the Iliad and the Odyssey, they would see what it's like to uh, be destroyed and annihilated in this world, and then what it's like to survive it and make this a better world, if, mm-hmm. you, if, if you would follow the poets. And then this is deeply unoriginal. This is a very a brief bit of advice, but follow the poets, read the poets. It's not that the answers are there, but the ability to begin to ask the questions is there. That's why you read them. Well, Dr. Tatum, I thank you so very, very much. Um, I've been so grateful to be with you. And again, the book here is African-American Writers of Classical Tradition. And we are just so grateful to you for your contribution to all of us. Well, thank you very much. It's been an honor to be here. Thank you.